Good evening and welcome to episode 50 of the Political Mike podcast. I can't believe it's been 50 episodes and I am so happy to have you guys on for the 50th edition. Um, so much has happened this week. We've had two uh, big elections take place, two gubernatorial elections specifically take place. Of course, there are other municipal elections uh, around the country, um, but pretty much the consensus is that it was a big night for the GOP. Uh, we also have the ongoing trial pertaining in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, pertaining to Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, and we also have President Biden returning from a global uh, summit pertaining to climate change. Here to help me break all of this down, in addition to the negotiations going on about the Build Back Better agenda and the bipartisan infrastructure deal, are three dynamic panelists. I've had them all before. Inquisitive minds, uh, great perspectives. And it's going to be a good discussion tonight. So I'm glad you tuned in. Uh, we have Camilla, uh, who has uh, been the former director of campus programs and regional political director for Doug Jones for U.S. Senate. Uh, she's a social worker, a visual artist, um, and a political activist from San Francisco, California. <coughs> she's a graduate of Oakland University. <coughs> and she has, she has a background in social work. <coughs> With, a, with field experience in medical social work, uh, human rights advocacy, crisis services, and child welfare. She serves as an, as an elected member of the Alabama Democratic Party's executive board and is currently working as a campaign consultant and pursuing a master's in public administration uh, with a concentration in public policy. Camilla, it's always a treat to have you on. Thanks for being uh, back. Uh, we also have Nate Honore, who is a 3L at Quinnipiac University School of Law. Always a treat to have Nate on. And finally, uh, we have Ms. Tia Toombs, uh, who is a senior at Oakwood University, um, who was also Miss Oakwood University, uh, I believe last year, is that is that correct? Yeah, so a really great panel. Um, looking forward to the discussion, but I wanna start off by talking about Tuesday night. Um, you know, a lot of folks, especially, you know, Republicans have said, well, this is a, this is a bellwether of what Democrats can expect. And when you look at historic, uh, historically speaking, uh, those two races, Virginia and New Jersey, both, I know a lot, of a lot of folks that said Virginia, but when you look at the history of New Jersey too, going back to like the Jimmy Carter administration, uh, both have really turned to the opposite direction uh, whenever one party wins the White House. You go back to uh, 2009, Chris Christie wins the governorship. Bob McDonald wins the governorship of Virginia. Uh, Chris Christie, New Jersey. Um, you go back to, you know, the aftermath of 9-11, a Democrat uh, won the state of Virginia uh, and the state of New Jersey. Uh, you go back to the Clinton years, the same trend. Um, so it wasn't completely a bad night for Democrats because Phil Murphy narrowly held on. Uh, but I want to get your thoughts as to whether, you know, what went wrong and why um, did things go so much so in the GOP's direction in your view? Um, and what can the Democrats learn from this? Um, I would like to say that one of the most common phrases I've been hearing is that um, McAuffle, or I don't really know how to pronounce his name, um, McAuffle was uninspiring. And I would say I have to agree. Um, but I'd also say that the Republicans have been unusually inspiring and the most common emotion or the most common Thing that they inspire is stupidity from their voters um, and just a lack of research, a lack of critical thinking, I would say, from the Republicans right now. 
So to counteract that, I don't think that Democrats can use the basic mode of reason right now, especially in their elections, um, and just McAuff, McAuffle, sorry, was just, it, it was it was just a, a regular campaign to me. There wasn't really anything that would have brought me out for him if I lived in Virginia. So it wasn't that surprising that um, he lost. And um, he, he started to turn towards COVID-19 and focusing on that. And I think he waited a little bit too late um, for that because he started gaining in the polls afterwards. Um, and it just wasn't enough. Some of the things that Virginia voters really cared about, he waited a little too late to address. So. No, I completely agree. Um, I think that, you know, McAuliffe thought that, you know, he could basically run on the same kind of, you know, anti-Trump playbook that worked last fall. Uh, the problem is that, you know, we were, we're almost a year in to a new president's administration, Democratic president's administration. And the frustration with folks isn't with Trump anymore. It's really with the lack of any kind of action going on on Capitol Hill. And so I think that's why you saw him on the morning, the Sunday morning talk show saying, well, you bet I'm, I'm frustrated with the Democrats, you know, get in there and negotiate a deal. Um, but, you know, to your point, Tia, I think he did focus on Trump too much. I think that, you know, when you compare, contrast his message with Youngkin's, and, and I, I even, you know, had a feeling that Youngkin was going to win. You know, Young, you had more people who had something to vote for, regardless of whether it was based in reality. You know, the whole critical race theory um, issue that wasn't even taught in public Virginia public schools. Um you know, they had something uh, something that attached them to Youngkin. And there was even a, a woman uh, who said she voted for every Democrat in every presidential election, um, including President Biden. She voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. But she said she was going hard for Youngkin because, you know, she, he was talking about education. The fact that kids were, you know, spending months on end at this virtual learning space. The fact that, you know, he was talking about giving more power to parents when it come down to uh, curriculums and all of those things really appealed uh, to that demographic. Uh, I want to get the rest of your thoughts. Um, I would, I think I, I would have to, so Republicans, I think are, are kind of right, right? They're, they're saying that Democrats are sort of in out of their heads. I think it was the um, House Minority Leader who was talking about um, the election and was saying that uh, Democrats are, are going after these these extremists, what he considers to be extremists. I understand why they would think that they were lofty goals, considering we can't get nothing done. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, this huge climate, whatever, these huge, we're going to do all these. And it's like, they're really all, and a lot of them are really just for show, right? They're either, you know, representative politics or putting someone in that position um, to, to make it seem like progress, or we're talking about it, talking about it, talking about it, or, or playing off of people's, uh, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of emotional manipulation. We did a lot of emotional manipulation between 2016 and, and, and 2020 um, to help turn out voters. But I think people are understanding that that's really not enough. People are looking for actual action, real answers to their to their to their issues, and so I think we're going to continue to see trends like this, where even if people aren't voting more Republican, I think that people are definitely losing interest, and that is just as scary. Most definitely, I would agree. I think one. Go ahead. I would agree. Sorry, to go ahead. I think that the Republicans have found themselves a long-term playbook. Um, I don't think that 
it's sustainable, obviously, but right now it's working for them. They're winning elections and, um, you know, we might not agree with that playbook, but it's going to solidify itself in history. Trump was the one who introduced it and it was just wildly popular. Um, the way that he executed his sometimes like just stepping away from basic politics and just getting on a podium and just talking (laughs) and just honestly without even any real um, sort of action plans but to to me that's the basic um, factors of inspiration when it comes to an election and the republicans have that they're inspiring people that i don't agree with but in reality it's actually working like you were saying the, the democrats are just they're kind of going for the same playbook honestly and and it, it's really not working we're seeing that it's it's hurting them and um they've they've got to find a different way really they do i think yeah. the one big lesson that democrats need to take from this is that the consultants that nancy pelosi and chuck schumer are using don't have their finger on the pulse anymore um it's been very obvious since you know january since the new crop of representatives were seated and everyone got their committee assignments, that education was going to be the big thing that Republicans are going to focus on, uh, not just for the off-year elections this year in Virginia and New Jersey, but also in next year's midterms. And a lot of things can be bundled down into education, uh, school sports, vaccinations, uh, school closures, COVID policy in general, you can all boil that down into education. So it's been obvious that education was going to be the wedge issue for this election. Um, the GOP has mastered getting their base angry. So at this point, you know, you shouldn't be surprised that the base can be angry and show up to vote because angry people vote. So, you know, the fact that no, uh, nobody was clued in on, hey, Youngkin is going to make this all about education really says something about the state of who the party is hiring as consultants. And really, it also is a huge question mark on Jamie Harrison's ability to see since his number one job to win elections. You know, the story that's not getting a lot of attention, I think, is the, the, the fact that black turnout was low. You know, that's really what uh, I think put the nail in the coffin for McCullough's candidacy. I, I, I think that, you know, McCullough being a governor already you know he was a former governor it was throwing back to 2013 to 2017 i believe you know he had a record and when you have a record you want to run on that record you want to explain why it is that things were better uh or what what it is that you're going to take to the next level right and what it is that's at stake if the other side gets the governorship Uh, i think that you know even going into the debates watching the two debates that took place um listening to how uh, Youngkin was trying to position himself as, you know, Mr. Economy, trying to make himself look like, look, I know, underst- I understand how businesses work. I understand how 503 uh, C's work. I understand how the corporate, the corporate world works. And Terry McAuliffe, you know, saying, well, no, you don't. And the two of them going back and forth and Youngkin, you know, also kind of finger pointing and saying, I'm going to look to see how many times uh, you mentioned the name Trump tonight. You know, all of those things resonated with folks who actually sympathize with Trump, wish they, they could have had him as president, but just couldn't bear the thought of him being in charge behind, in the cockpit with COVID still going on. 
if he had hammered, like Tia had mentioned, on COVID, um, you know, from the from the jump, I think it would have been a much tighter race. And not to say that it wasn't a tight race already. I mean, look, when you look at the polls, you see that uh, Youngkin won by a hair, really, 50.9% to 48.4%. I know a lot of folks are saying, oh, this is a landslide. I would say, well, if you think this is a landslide, then last year was a landslide for the Democrats because, you know, you're seeing these narrow margins. I know they took the legislature, but the fact that it was so close doesn't mean that you have the mandate you think you have, in my view. Um, and to your point with Jimmy Harrison, that was a good point, Nate. I, I think look, <laughs> Jimmy Harrison, um, I think, understands retail politics, you know, being that he was from South Carolina and he said, look, I'm going to run for South. I'm running on South Carolina issues. I think the thing that hurt McAuliffe was the fact that a lot of folks wanted to rebel against the establishment. When you see Obama coming in, Stacey Abrams coming in, um, um, you had the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms flying in. Uh, you had all these outsiders coming in to tell Virginia what to do. I do think that stirred up the wrong response from that crowd. That coupled with the lack of black voter enthusiasm is what made it a done deal. Any other thoughts? Oh, well, let me ask this question. You know, what, what are the key takeaways? What are the key takeaways? If, Glenn's, if Glenn Youngkin's candidacy is actually a blueprint for how the GOP is to move forward, not embracing Trump all the way, kind of moving that, you know, middle of the line approach, uh, appealing to the traditional like Romney Bush Republicans, um, what are the key takeaways in that approach to you um, on moving forward in the midterms and possibly 2024? Democrats need to deliver on their agenda for, especially for their black voters. You know, uh, black voters sat through eight years of a black president. We are now almost a year into having a black vice president. That's not enough if you don't actually have a tangible benefit for the people who made it possible for you to get there in the first place. So yeah, Biden's signature legislation so far was the American Rescue Plan, but that was in Feb that was in you know February, March. We're in November now. What we were supposed to have is the infrastructure bill, and we can't even get that because a few people in the Senate think that uh, four weeks of paid parents leave is too much. You need to actually pass if you want people to be that as a vote, especially the base of your party, which is black, which is young, which is female. Um, and especially, you know, if people like Youngkin are able to kind of sell up the, the uh, Romney voters, and we had this discussion earlier, I used the wrong Republican, but kind of the Romney voters, the kind of Gerald Ford Republicans who are the mythical people who are really more socially liberal but fiscally conservative or whatever, those people are still going to vote GOP 10 times out of 10. So that that's not a block that you can actually win. You need to actually get the people who are going to vote for you to come out and show up for you. Yeah, I honestly couldn't agree with Nathan more. I feel like Democrats are paving the way for the success of Republicans. They don't have to have a game plan because we're constantly getting in our own way. Um, I, I feel like, uh, you know, where we're, he's Nathan's completely right about a lot of who these consultants are. Um, often their profile in terms of who they are is very white. It's older. It's generally male. Um, and so what we're getting is not uh, advice or uh, perspective from the people who these bills are actually affecting, we're getting advice and perspective from people who are assuming what multiple uh, minority groups who all have a, a variety of different interests might want. And then on top of that, we're trying to find this middle ground between the interests of people who are asking for very simple things like 
access to <laughs> life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And in, in, in more extreme states like this, right, they're asking for health care in response to a global pandemic. They're asking for economic, uh, you know, relief after an economic crisis, you know? And that's just what we've experienced in the last two years. That's that's not, you know, the the homelessness, the poverty, the all of the other things that are, have already been present, right? And so, then when you are asking me to vote for you, but the middle line that you're trying to find is between my humanity and not turning off certain voters who might disagree with certain matters, which matters are they? Let me know. Tell me. Give me a list of what these matters are, right? And let me know why someone might agree with them. And then after you let me know why they might agree with them, let me know why you are in the business of negotiating with people who do not have my best interest in mind, right? Not in an attempt to, to protect their personal freedoms, but truly in an attempt to take the freedoms away from others. I, I, I've worked in communications. I, you know, We've done a, a lot of work with um, lots of different democratic organizations across the US. And uh, depending on the member, depending on the situation, depending on you know what what what's going on at the time uh you're there are certain things that you are not really so you know sort of allowed to talk about at the time because it might create a riff ooh that's a hot button issue ooh maybe we shouldn't talk about that. why not and for the people who those issues are affecting for how long are we going to ask them to wait and then blame the black vote uh <laughs> blame the lack of turnout on the black vote the black vote are you serious it feels like projection. It feels like misplaced blame to me. That's all. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> Those are solid points, and, and and this is the the fact that you know the campaign did not focus more on what is critical race theory. You know, there's a lot of um, you know misconceptions about it. I know a lot of people have said, "Oh, well, it's not taught in public school." Michael Steele, it's, it's not taught in Virginia public school. Your sixth grader is not learning critical race theory. What is critical race theory? Let's learn what it is, right? Because these same folks would say, well, we already learned about slavery. But how can you learn about slavery and not know, okay, why is there a graduation gap today in 2021? Why is there an income gap today in 2021? The, the story didn't end, you know, in the Reconstruction era. There was something that happened that caused these things. They didn't fall out the sky. Uh, let me just pause and say, you know, all the views and perspectives represented tonight are our own and are not reflective of anyone else. Uh, but that being said, you know, I'm curious to know, you know, in addition to Camilla's point, is low black uh, voter turnout to blame for McCullough's defeat? You know, when I <laughs> when I was looking at um, an article, um, you know, Marsha Price, who's a member of the Virginia House of Delegates who won re-election, uh, one of the most one of the successful Democrats this past Tuesday she said, I believe that black voters are easily the first target for when things don't go <laughs> for how they want it to go. She said it's a trash take to look at us and not the middle. She said, the middle said Yunkin is more palatable than Trump and they were willing to take a chance with him. Um, what is your response to that kind of take? I was gonna say the exact or something similar. Um, I hate using this word, but it feels like gaslighting where these candidates continue to ignore black issues, issues that you know, my community, the Black community, really honestly and truly care about that affect us every day, that affect our human rights um, violations every single day. They continue to ignore us. And then go and win, their, or win or lose their elections and try to blame us for the outcome of that. And 
as you were saying, there's so many factors as to why someone could lose an election. But I feel if you lost an election because of lack of black voter turnout, it's no one's fault but your own. Because you, can, you can't continue to ignore a set of people and then blame them for your loss. Because you deserved that loss. You're a representative and you're supposed to represent every person in that district, in that zone. And I say, go ahead, blame us if that's the case, but don't gaslight us or try to make us feel bad because we didn't elect a Democrat in office because that Democrat wasn't listening. And, and that's the voice, that's the answer. Our answer to you was no, because you didn't listen. So sure, I, I personally don't think that the, our, our lack of turnout was to blame. I think Mick Olive <laughs> um, had various reasons why, and I, I've mentioned a few of them before. But yeah, I'm, I'm really sick of that of that defense and you know to, to that point as well you know <laughs> the the thing the thing is when you look at the map you know when you look at Loudoun County when you look at Fairfax when you look at Roanoke when you look at when you look at the map side by side with the 2020 regime uh, you know election map that you know the counties Biden and Trump won the blue areas really went blue and the red areas went red what 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 was interesting was the margins in which uh, those counties were won. Um, you know, you, you look at Alexandria, you're looking at uh, Albemarle, um, you know, you go down to the Richmond area, Chesterfield County, Chesapeake City. Um, those areas went for McAuliffe solidly. And, you know, everything else, the, the, the huge swaths of red uh, where there's a lot of land, but not much people, those went for Yunkin. But Yunkin was able to uh, motivate folks to get to the polls and had us and had a, you know, folks had a reason. You talked about the grocery tax, you know, that resonates with folks. Oh, I can understand that. I, I, I'm going to benefit from that tangibly. You know, um, when you talk about, in addition to the education issue, it was so interesting to see how he decided what the election was going to be about and then went ahead and just hammered it, hammered that in. And then when McCall slipped up and it was like a throwaway line, he said, uh, parents shouldn't tell teachers what to teach. You know, people pounced on that. Now, when you break that apart, I mean, it's like in the same way parents shouldn't tell doctors how to prescribe medicine or parents shouldn't, you know, Nate, uh, you know, give, you know, legal advice um, for someone who's a defendant. I mean, it kind of makes sense that if you're in a profession, you you have a, a, a special skill set that under that makes you understand what's needed in this situation. Um, if he had explained that more and, you know, allowing the other side to just spin the story um, just seems to be the, the the common theme when you're looking at these these midterm elections and, and you know, year after year. But the, the big night, <laughs> the big story of the night to me was just how much of a squeaker New Jersey was. I know a lot of people were like, you know, I, I knew Phil Murphy was going to win, but I didn't think it was going to be that close. And the, the race kind of just closed in really quickly uh, with, with Jack Cirelli closing in. I want to get your response real quick before we move on from this topic on the New, Jer New Jersey race. And, you know, if possible, if you want to talk about any of the uh, municipal elections that took place, Boston elected his first uh, female mayor of color, uh, Michelle Wu, who's not even from Boston, from Illinois, which is interesting. I mean, you have the first Asian American, uh, I'm sorry, the yeah, the first um, yeah Asian American to be the mayor of Chicago, I believe. You had a lot of firsts. Um, so it wasn't a complete loss for Democrats. You know, you had some historic 
uh, victories. Uh, what do you guys say? New Jersey definitely was a surprise to me. Um, New Jersey is a state that's significantly more blue than Virginia is. So for the governor's race there to come down to, you know, two points is a big shock. It, it, uh, and Phil Murphy actually is quite popular uh, there too. So it does speak to, I guess, how the national for Democrats had shifted so completely in just a year. Um, very glad about Boston's mayoral result. I have um, family who worked on uh, the incoming mayor Ruse campaign. Um, as far as her appeal, you know, it's about picking the right people. She was previously a city council member. She's a close friend of Elizabeth Warren. So, you know, she knew the right people, but she had a community connection. She campaigned on bold and ambitious proposals like rent control in Boston, which is uh, a city that, def uh, that desperately needs rent control as uh, rent in the Northeast has been soaring lately. Uh, she campaigned on making public transit, you know, uh, free, which is a huge deal for Boston. So, you know, making these big ambitious proposals. And she also did something that you don't always see in Boston mayoral elections, which is that she did her best to appeal to every single community. Usually you see uh, city uh, Boston politicians try to pit uh, the Irish and the Italians against the Cape Verdeans, against the Haitians, you know, against the Puerto Ricans and, and pit everyone else against the Chinese. But what she did was try to bring everyone together. And that's not something you especially see in Boston politics. But it's something that she said, this is what this is what's gonna work, actually getting people to come out and show up. So that's the formula that Democrats need to find and follow nationwide. Otherwise, we're in for a 2010 level uh beatdown at the midterms next year. Yeah, I um I think I think we also need to, as Democrats, uh understand that we don't own the black vote. Nobody, nobody owes us anything. You're you're not we're not nobody's required to there's this there's so much print. I want us to like demystify the concept of the black vote and and where they are. Like it, it's 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 yeah yeah. It's like many, so many years of ownership, and now you owe my vote too. Like Jesus Christ! Like when do we find freedom? You know. Um, but yeah, that's all I had to say. I just wanted to piggyback off of Tia. Yeah, you know, in New Jersey, you know, Democrats benefited from the unpopularity, similar to how McCullough benefited and and, and Ralph Northam, the current governor. Uh, lame duck governor benefited, you know, benefited from the unpopularity of former President Trump, former Governor Chris Christie. Uh, they were able to turn one solid GOP suburbs uh, blue. Um, they saw their voter registration advantage over Republicans soar to more than a million. Um, and they grew their state legislative majorities. You know, when you look at the fact that they flew in Bernie Sanders, to me, that was just a show of even more confidence that, look, we've got this in the back. We're not afraid of scaring away these middle of the road folks who are so shaky and, you know, we, let's fly Bernie in, get him to endorse Phil Murphy. Uh, let's just wrap this thing up, you know, get some star power in here, wrap up the base, energize folks, get, get enthusiasm. And I think the big shock was just how many um, of these suburbs who went for Trump and Christie and then went for, for um, Biden and went for, uh, you know, Northam in 2017. I mean, not Northam, um, Phil Murphy in 2017, we're just like, you know, you know, put the brakes on a little bit. We're not completely sold with the Democratic Party because of X, Y, Z. I know Frank Silarelli said, look, if taxes is your number one issue, New Jersey's not your state. And, you know, 
these candidates kind of position themselves as Mr. Economy all the time. And it kills me how, you know, poll after poll shows that more people have confidence in them when it comes down to the economy. Um, any more thoughts before we transition to the negotiation talks? If, go ahead. Yes, I just wanted to mention um, Bernie Sanders coming out. Uh, it was a lot of confidence for them to do that. Um, I mean, he, he does carry a big name, but I'd like to say, in my opinion, that America um, is um, letting progressivism becoming, it's becoming a lot more popular. Um, and they, they are, Democrats are scared to showcase that and showcase a lot of these more liberal policies. But to me, um, the polls and uh, are, are showing that it, it's wildly popular. You know, the infrastructure, Biden's infrastructure plan, everyone knows how popular this is. And it, that's why we're so frustrated that it's um, being gridlocked in the, in the Senate right now. Because we know that, um, that all walks of life approve this. Um, right now, you know, the pe pandemic, everyone is hurting. And so people who may have always voted red or may have always um, had one mindset are willing to try something new right now because just how much we're going through. And so seeing these, um, seeing surprising outcome election like that, um, it's really letting you know to just let go of the, <laughs> let go of the middle ground, let go of straddling the line because it can really pay off in a big way. Um, So we also have, you know, all these elections happening with the backdrop of, you know, these ongoing negotiations that have been going on since uh, last spring for months. The House of Representatives and Senate Democrats uh, have tried to negotiate with Senators uh, Manchin and Kristen Sinema on a single social spending bill that could pass both chambers uh, with as much as little drama as possible. Uh, Manchin and Sinema are signaling they're comfortable with the top line uh, coming down to 1.75 trillion from 3.5 trillion, uh, with Cinema even reassuring fellow Democrats that she's actually largely on board uh, with the policies proposed by Biden. So that seems to be good news. Um, but you also have that, you know, with the multiple policy disputes remaining, House Democratic leaders and progressives are now ready to speed <laughs> toward passage of a bill that doesn't have Senator Manchin's blessing. Um, and this would make the bill face an uncertain fate in the Senate. I'm wondering if, in your view, the Democrats, you know, have made enough concessions. Enough is enough. We've seen what happens when we don't deliver. Let's just fo move forward. And, you know, we've made enough concessions to Manchin. If he's not on board now, then, you know, forget it. We'll just move on with this process. Do you think that moving forward with this process and having an uncertain fate in the Senate is the way to go for Democrats? I think Democrats have made too many concessions, if we're being completely honest with you. This bill started out at $3.5 trillion, and it got cut in half. The bipartisan bill that passed the Senate and only needs a House vote and Joe Biden's signature to become law is about 30% of what Joe Biden originally proposed when he first uh, uh, unveiled the American Families Plan and the American Jobs Plan back in March. And it's not even a good 30%. You know, when you want to make this bill, this big transformative legislation that's supposed to transform the fate and the future of the country, you need to spend money. That's just the fact of the matter. I don't know why Democrats even now are still so afraid to be, uh, uh, to be accused of not caring about the deficit or the national debt when, Democrat, when Republicans don't care about the national debt either, you know? So uh, no one actually cares about the debt. They care about, you know, what you can tangibly do for them. So 
you know, when people see that, you know, paid family leave is getting cut, that uh, Joe Manchin refused to spend money on expanding the child tax credit, but he wants to spend more money to means test it anyway. You know, when people see that two people in the Demo in the majority party are allowed to block it and nobody in party leadership is actually willing to publicly call them out and instead handles them behind closed doors with kid gloves, you know, there is no way uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, for example, the two most moderate, uh, moderate senators on the Republican side would be allowed to block their party's uh, goals like this to the point where... Uh, it went until, like, a lot of the no's that Murkowski and uh, and Collins voted on were only after it was certain that Republicans had the votes to pass that they were going to pass. Like, on if, if uh, for example, last year when Justice Barrett was confirmed, I don't believe that Susan Collins would have been allowed to vote no if Mitch McConnell was seriously worried that he didn't have the votes to pass. But since he knew he had the votes... Uh, she was allowed to make this big speech about how she was going to vote no because she didn't think it was appropriate to you know, nominate the justice at the time. And that probably saved her Senate career because she was reelected and now we we're stuck with her till 2026. So, you know, uh, speeding the bill and letting it fail isn't going to help either, but we've already you know, lost a bunch of momentum by just let, having all this infighting because the moderates want to do one thing and you know the progressives are like we have to pass the actual popular version of the bill. No, that's a good point. And, and you know, in addition to that, you know, I'm wondering if, for instance, like you have a lot of folks saying, okay, let me go back to Mansion. Mansion says, look, what's the rush? Let's have everything accounted for. Let's make sure that the price tag is in order. Let's make sure everything has a line. Out, you know, let's make sure that everything could be paid for. Right. This is the same mansion who also vote against uh, increasing taxes on billionaires, even though there are 700 billionaires in the United States. Not one of them is in West Virginia. Um, in addition to that, you know, while he's saying, what's the rush? Let's just keep it going. Let's keep the negotiations going until kingdom come. We're getting closer and closer to a time when folks are not going to be focused on passing legislation at all or at least making it a number one priority, it's all gonna be about re-election, right? And if you are focused on passing legislation, it's gonna, they're, they're not gonna be monumental pieces of legislation here. So the window for Democrats right now is very, is very small, right? So even with the Affordable Care Act, when we had 57 Senate, senators in the Senate, right? We still were able to move in such a way where by the time 2010 comes, spring of 2010 comes, all of the, the heavy lifting was already taken care of. Right. And there were no senators that were willing to derail and the whole process. And to your point, Nate, if we're going to compare this to the, 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 the Trump's Senate in 2017, I mean, look at how much in lockstep they were all for that 2017 jobs cut and, and tax um, cut for the rich. They were all moving in one accord. Not one Republican, no matter how moderate or reasonable, uh, you know, they, they brand themselves to be stood in the way of that. And you still had people walking away with the badge of moderate and with the badge of far right. And so it's like, we're the only ones worried about garnering support from the other side. You know, mentioned, you know, he's saying, well, let's make sure that this process is one in which the other side is being a part of. The other side is not even trying to play the game, folks. I mean, look, they've already made up in their mind. This, this is something they're going to oppose. 
And there comes a time when you have to say, okay, I know this may cost me politically, but in the long run, this is what's going to be beneficial for the country. Any other thoughts? Joe Manchin is either really, really gullible or this is all performance art. I just, I'm sorry, I just have to add that in there because, you know, for the reconciliation process to start in the first place and for the money, for the bill to start at three and a half trillion, he had to sign on to that. So he's really, either really, really gullible about Republicans' willingness to operate in good faith or this is performance art and he's trying to see how much power he actually has within the party because it's clear the Democratic Party is an old white man named Joe. The question is, is it Joe Manchin or is it Joe Biden? And, you know, Manchin said on MSNBC, Democrats should slow down on the social spending bill and wait and see if inflation is transit, uh, transitory. Uh, Jill, Senator Gillibrand of New York um, signaled as well in an interview that, you know, her negotiations with Manchin on paid leave are now done. They're still an op- they're, they're not done. There's still an open door. Is there still hope for paid family leave to be included in your view? Or, you know, is Manchin's humming and hawing, you know, and, you know, dragging his feet just making this even more and more evident to be a lost cause in your view. There better be paid family leave is what I, is what I have to say. Oh, all the jobs that the, that the bipartisan bill creates are nothing if people can't afford to actually pay for someone to look after their kids or pay for their kids to actually be in preschool. So, you know, we're not going to actually see the benefits of the bipartisan bill unless we get the reconciliation bill. And paid family leave makes an incredible amount of sense. The U.S. is probably the only uh, developed country in the world that doesn't have some form of it. And four weeks and 12 weeks, which is, you know, the top of the proposal, is still nothing when you look at other countries that have 36 weeks of paid family leave. Or, tw- or you know, on the lower end of those countries is 24 weeks. And we can't, we can't even agree on four. I mean, honestly, it feels like we can't agree on anything. Um, because paid family leave isn't the only thing that we're behind on at this point. And people like Joe Manchin just don't seem to care about that. It's it's embarrassing just how behind we are on basic things um, that are seen as progressive here, where, you know, across the pond, it's pretty, pretty normal policy. Um, I, I don't, I can't get into the mind of Manchin on whether he is just you know, making some power plays, trying to test his waters, his limits. Um, but I know that it's extremely annoying as a constituent. Well, he's not, I'm not his constituent, but it's extremely annoying to see um, something something that could help everyone, that could solve a lot of problems for a lot of different people um, being being stalled like this, especially the election coming up. It's not, it's not even just hurting Joe Biden, it's hurting a lot of the other senators um, when their elections are coming up. Um, We need to get this passed. Um, I mean, I can't tell you how important it is. Not everyone knows, but um, yeah, I I think recently um, the new, I don't know if it's strategy, but the new strategy of pitting Manchin and Cinema against each other um, seems to be working a little. because, you know, I, I guess without, without them together, like the United Front, no one wants to be seen as Stone was the one that's, that's stalling this popular um, plan and pitting them against each other. Uh, they they want to seem, seem cooperative, even if they're not. And so um, 
having having this new strategy, I'm not sure if it works, but I would have done it a long time ago. Um, honest, I wouldn't have even pit them against each other. I would have had them just, I would have just um, put it to a vote and and have have them say see th these are the these are the two that are standing in the way of progress these are the two just putting a spotlight on them it should have been done a long time ago i don't know what um, leadership is afraid of uh, for calling them out but um it should have been done a long time ago so what and, do you say oh go ahead camille i was just going to add really quickly um it should have been done a long time ago and i think that um going back to the question of like, who are we asking to wait and for how long, again, are we asking them to wait? Um, and there was something else that you said, um, oh yeah, Joe Manchin by by no means is the Democrat that we should be aligning ourselves with in terms of how the direction that we should be going. Cause like Tina said, the, the profile for what a Democrat looks like, if you, if you, especially if you're like working on the field, working in the community, it's very common that the, the, the range in terms of like people's actual political ideals can range to be very, very leftist, even in, in even in terms of, you know, the Southern states that uh, maybe a uh, majority Republican, it is not, it, you'll, it's very common to find somebody who's like, you know, I believe too in XYZ, but you know, we can't talk about that right now. We're, we're you know, we're trying to, uh, the ends justifies the means, right? We're trying to look at the, play the long game, the end goal, but I don't think it's a good strategy. I think it's going to, we're going to continue to lose every time. And even the way that we talk about um, a lot of these elections that we lost, we're like, we didn't fully lose. Even that mindset is a loser mindset. It's a participation trophy. <laughs> like, oh, we lost. <laughs> What Personally, if I was uh, Chuck Schumer, I would have put Manchin and Cinema on agriculture and been on the agriculture committee and been done with that because they don't farm in Arizona and they don't farm in West Virginia. Take away their ability to help their constituents and see how quickly they fall in line. Actually play hardball when you're a leader because leaders need to lead. So when you're not actually publicly calling out your leaders, you know what Trump would do whenever a Republican would be a little too noisy? He'd tweet about endorsing their primary opponent and then they'd fall back in line. Uh, literally because Jeff Sessions was not loyal enough to Trump, Trump ended his political career. A 30-year Senate career done just like that because he wasn't loyal enough. So now he lost his Senate seat to football coach from Auburn, not even university, not even Nick Saban, the coach of, the coach of Auburn. So, you know, uh, really this is about whether or not leadership is willing to fight the tough fights. And so far they've certainly they haven't. And it's part of the generational difference and not and when i say generation i don't necessarily say age but the age of your ideas and whether or not you're willing to try new things because durbin uh and uh schumer are around the same age um they've been in they've been in the party for a while but because the democrats are so obsessed with old uh ideas about seniority and prestige dick durbin has been in the senate since the mid 90s and he's only just now becoming a committee chair because Dianne Feinstein was uh, running the uh, Democratic side of the Judiciary Committee for so long. And in doing so, it meant that he pushed another Democrat out of the way who was prob uh, in uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who was a much stronger questioner, especially in his passion to rid the judiciary of dark money. So, you know, when Democrats focus on doing things the way they've always been done, it means that they're cutting themselves short and robbing themselves of future opportunities. Uh, you know, Chuck Grassley literally stepped down from judiciary because it meant that giving Lindsey Graham, you know, who was a big national figure in the party, that extra microphone. Democrats need to learn to do the same thing.
Now, what do you guys say to those Republican uh, voters or Republican leading voters who say, look, we didn't vote for Biden because we want social infrastructure. You know, all of this is throwing money away to, to folks who are not trying to work and get a job and get a living. And I've paid my way. Um, I put my kid through college. I put myself, I, I put myself through, you know, an education. And, you know, if I can do it, then other folks can do it. And, you know, we voted for him to handle COVID-19. We, we voted for him. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do infrastructure. We do need a, to upgrade our airports and our roads and bridges. Uh, but this is not what I voted for. I didn't vote for an FDR style presidency. Um, I'm looking for more of a nice, calm, moderate Democrat, um, because that's what I was willing to vote for against Trump. What do you say to those folks? Well, Republicans didn't vote for Biden in the first place. Trump got like 97% of the Republican vote, meaning the places where Republicans actually flipped the election to Biden were minimal at best. Uh, you know, Georgia uh, was led by grassroots activists. Arizona was the perfect coalition of grassroots activists. Trump's unpopularity in the Navajo Nation who watched the GOP's response to COVID-19 decimate their own communities and say, no more, enough is enough. So uh, GOP voters don't want Democrats to win. You know, Democrats are too obsessed with uh, trying to please those voters instead of their own base. And part of it is just the fact that they're not willing to talk and actually get in front of microwaves and get in front of cameras and dominate the airwaves. You know, they don't act, the GOP is allowed to dictate the terms of debate because the GOP always speaks first and floods the airwaves until they find something that sticks. Meanwhile, uh, the consultants for the Democratic side are trying to find the perfect focused tested words that's going to appease not only the progressives, but also the moderates, the suburban swing voters, and of course, the uh, the uh, Romney-type Republicans who are all about uh, uh, compromise and bipartisanship. But, you know, in, in words anyway, but not actually in action. Um, I would say the type of voter you're talking about lacks basic empathy for the um, everyday American. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure who, who that would be, but um, whatever, whatever um, you know, old money Republican that you were referring to, I would say your generational wealth has helped you and that's fine. But there's plenty of people out there that are struggling and um, this, this plan can help you know, the everyday person and to just dig deep and find some empathy for that. I mean, you might not want to spend money, but there has been plenty of proposals on how to pay for this. Um, through the billionaires tax and you know other other taxes that they might not like and as Nathan was saying the GOP didn't vote for Biden but um, even if he is an FDR president you know history stands stands to stands positive on that 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 worked for the um, the uh, the plans that FDR, FDR put in place really worked at a time when people were hurting and it created jobs and it created a lot of um, a lot of money flowing through the economy. So I and mean, social security. Yes. So and these historic policies that we didn't think would ever would ever be normal in our society are now, you know, essential to our way of life. So it might seem very progressive right now, but 
you know, at, just give it a try. And, you know, when a Republican, the next time a Republican president gets elected, he can just dismantle it. So I do want to move on to the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, trial that's going on uh, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, you know, this past Tuesday, jurors had starkly different portrayals about Kyle Rittenhouse. Of course, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, was the 17-year-old um, who was charged, now he's 18, who was charged with killing two men and wounding a third during the summer of 2020 um, during the George Floyd protests. And he was killed. He killed them with an assault-style rifle. Um, and so, you know, the, the trial is going on. Um, the prosecutor said that Rittenhouse set the bloodshed in motion when he triggered a confrontation with a man that night that killed him, um, then killed him with a bullet in the back. Uh, Rittenhouse's attorney told the jury that his client acted in self-defense um, after the man tried to grab Rittenhouse's gun and others kicked the teen in the face and clubbed him in the head with a skateboard. He said, you as jurors will end up looking at it from the standpoint of a 17-year-old under the circumstances as they existed. Uh, and of course, the defense attorney's name is Mark Richards. Um, I want to get your perspective of that defense attorney's, uh, you know, what seems to be the, the crux of his argument in that not only was it self-defense, but please place yourself in the mind of this child. I know, you know, Nate, um, you know from torts, when we talk about the reasonable person, that, that you know, language has so many meanings in different contexts. But when we're talking about, it, at least with torts, especially with minors, you know, a lot of times the jury instruction would be put yourself in the reasonable child of that similar age in their position. Um, is that jury instruction correct in your view? Um, anyone can jump in. I think it's premature. You know, we haven't had the whole trial yet. We're not actually at the phase where the jury needs to sit down and deliberate. We're still in the early, you know, opening phases of it. So whether or not it's correct isn't the right question. I think it, uh, whether or not the question itself is actually right is the proper question. Um, you know, we all have our own feelings on Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, mainly that he had no business in Wisconsin anyway because he doesn't live in that state. But, you know, that's not what, you know, we're here to litigate. His defense, his defensive team is playing the kind of strategy that he was, you know, a good, upright, all-American who just found himself as a victim of the circumstances. But the fact of the matter is that this is a kid who crossed state lines for the time he was legally allowed to own and, you know, with the intent to shoot people down because his goal was to defend the goods, the, you know, mom and pop stores of Kenosha, Wisconsin. You know, he was working with, you know, police as a militia, you know, uh, as, you know, a member of a local militia and not, you know, just be, he wasn't defending his own property. He was defending some the stores for people he never met on behalf of local police. So, you know, that actually needs to be played out before the jury uh, in its whole, you know, state before we can talk about jury instructions. I think the attorney did a really smart thing by planting it in the minds of the jury already. But, you know, I think it's a premature question to, to make. And, and what's also interesting is that the, the defense attorney said, look, Kyle Rittenhouse did have ties to Kenosha, Wisconsin. You know, he, 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 he it wasn't like he was a stranger coming out of anywhere. He traveled to Kenosha from his home in Illinois, just across the Wisconsin state line. Um, you know, he, he, you know, went there to protect property. He, you know, had some kind of connection in terms of proximity to the location. So let's not make it seem like he's someone who just came from a random state and came over here. What do you guys make of that argument? 
Um, <laughs> I th I personally think that this whole trial is egregious already. Um, I just think it's a disgrace to our justice system. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh, the defense attorney has said the N-word multiple times already, um, that the jury um, is has a disproportionate amount of white people. Um, and just the whole premise of the crime is just, it's just outrageous to me, um, especially if I'm going to put myself in the shoes of a teenager of that age, 17, put myself in his shoes. I remember 17 very well, and I can't remember ever seeing myself do something like that. And that's, I mean, I will say that's just me. I consider myself to be somewhat radical. I've been to a protest or two in my day. Um, never have I had the desire to be violent or, you know, to to bring guns to an already hostile situation. So um, I realized that, you know, there are people that are very different from me, but to have to put myself in that kind of shoe isn't something that I want to do. And and this this trial just, it doesn't seem like a reasonable outcome can be made already. Um, I'm not sure if there's grounds for a mistrial. I'm not a legal expert yet, but it, it's just hard to watch this all play out already, seeing the mistakes that are, or the missteps that are being taken. Yeah. Um, oh, I was just going to say, um, it's also just pretty scary. Um, and it's reflective of just kind of like the entire system that, that we're under. Um, they're, they're trying really hard to paint this um, situation as, you know, some young kid who headed over to Wisconsin to visit his grandma and pick up candy. It's not, it's not that. You, you went across state lines, right, to an event with a group of people that, whose ideals align, don't align with yours, and then decided to bring weaponry. So that's where we're starting, right? And it's also scary to me that a minor can join a militia that would work alongside the police. And I think it's alarming that a militia who was involved in murdering multiple people and or murdering two people, injuring one at a protest is also who came in collaboration with the police. And I think that that is, is I think that that's very scary. You know, I think that that is absolutely terrifying. And I think that when people see things like that, right? Because he also had a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, uh, of, uh, there were a lot of like symbols, flags, things like that, that he aligned himself with also to, to key us in on where his personal ideals um, were, the perspective that he might be coming from. Um, and I think that it's scary that individuals with that uh, align themselves really with, with white supremacy in that way, um, so heavily and so deeply, would then find buddies <laughs> within uh, a department that is here to allegedly protect and serve. And I think the response is also scary because we know, I mean, we, we it, it's, it's the same story over and over again, right? We saw it um, in the responses to Black Lives Matter protests in Washington, D.C. versus the response to January 6th. We, it, 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 it's, it's, it feels like a very clear statement um, and, and a, a, a very... Uh, 
you are outlining who the enemy is and, and letting us know who you align with. And so for how long too, again, do I have to wait for any sort of progress around that or trust that they are really there uh, for me, for my protection, for my safety? If every time um, I see you, you you're buddy, buddy with the white supremacist. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's very tough. I mean, I know this, you know, it may be, uh, you know, tough, uh, using those words in relation um, to this, 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 this person while he's on trial. I'm sure that they're trying to stay away from, from, uh, from things like that. But also, we're also talking about a literal murderer. So it's very tough. Um, it's very, very tough. Yeah. I would, I would also say on top of that, I believe um, they're not allowed to refer to the victims as actual victims. Um, and Camilla's right. It's very scary. I mean, I've always known what kind of system that we've had um, as a black woman. It's it's clear um, how much we had to protest for somebody like George Floyd and and seeing, you know, justice just being so blatantly um, pushed aside right now. Um, it, it's 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 not just scary. It's it's typical is what it is. Um, I wish I could say that I'm surprised, but it's it, it, it's America. You know, the the elements of first degree murder just seem to be just as clear and cut as it as they are. You know, you're talking about killing a person with intent, deliberation, and premeditation. When you look at the facts and you see the fact that the guy he shot had his back turned, how do you make the argument that that's self defense if his back is turned? This is making they, me feel they make that argument every time we shoot an unarmed black person uh, as as police uh, officers. It's the same thing. They're like, we know. Oh yeah, your his back was to you. We know, <laughs> you know. And, and and while this is, you know, you go you listen to Janine Shapiro on Fox, and oh, he was a little boy who was concerned about his community. He thought he thought he he needed to take upon himself. Um, you know, you listen to Tucker Carlson praising him, and then. You go back to 2012. Trayvon Martin was a man. Trayvon Martin was, uh, uh, you know, someone who a grown man who was up to no good. And thank God we had George Zimmerman there uh, to to be the community watchman of the year. You know, it, the 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 fact that folks are willing to spin these narratives without being given a script, without having to convene and come up with an idea of what we're going to say all together, to me is amazing because. Here, you know, for folks who pride themselves of being textualist, you know, a lot of these conservatives pride themselves in being people of the text. Don't detect, don't talk to me about the spirit of the law. Tell me what the text says. The text says if you have premeditation, the fact that he traveled there, right? The fact that he he made the trip, the fact that he packed his 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 gun with him, you know, he's not. What else would he be bringing the gun for? Deliberation, you know, deliberate, deliberate intent uh, seems to also be there. Um, and, and, you know, you just go down the list, you just see element after element, and it's just interesting to see folks twist themselves into knots and make this controversial. This is not controversial. You know, this is as clear as day, you know, take Trayvon Martin and put him in a, a Virginia suburb and, you know, get the same result. And then all of a sudden these folks would fall in alignment with, uh, you know, the prosecutor. But before we end tonight, I do want to get your thoughts on President Biden's trip to Glasgow. I know we have about a minute left in the show, uh, but this was a big deal because you're talking about uh, President Biden actually making an apology uh, 
on behalf of his predecessor for the United States leaving the Paris Climate Accords. Of course, Secretary of State John Kerry, uh, now the climate envoy, President Obama, you know, worked tirelessly to get the United States to get into that agreement. Um, Trump, of course, took us out like he did the Iran nuclear deal. And so now the United States is viewed with some skepticism with Trump waiting seemingly in the wings for 2024. You know, can we trust the United States to make long-term commitments uh, when it comes down to uh, CO2 emissions, uh, when it comes down to, you know, imposing taxes on certain polluters? Um, how did Biden's uh, message of not just apologizing for coming out of the Paris Climate Accords, uh, but also his optimism in terms of what can be done by the year 2030 in terms of climate reductions being lower than it's ever been since 2005. Um, what did you make of that? Do, you know, do you think that those were realistic, tangible goals? Um, or do you think that the United States, um, you know, can't be trusted anymore when it, when it comes down to um, climate policy? Um. I'm going to say it doesn't matter if they're realistic or not. They're going to have to be. <laughs> um, we don't have much time. We don't really have a choice. So I am pretty um, happy with Biden's trip to Glasgow and some of the promises he made. I'll say um, even if those promises are broken, any sort of effort to me is 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 a win in my book. Um, hopefully, you know, any president that comes after Biden can uphold those same promises because our generation really can see the importance of um, climate change and and we we are running out of time, really. So I would appreciate any sort of promise um, and any sort of attempt to be made, but that's just me. His climate optimism and his climate ambitious is definitely welcome. It's definitely helpful. But if he wants to actually lead as the U.S., then he needs to actually be willing to fight the tough fights, uh, both domestically and abroad when it comes time to make negotiations for more, uh, when it comes to making negotiations for other international agreements that deal with climate or uh, even with trade agreements, because the consensus among the Democratic Party is that the U.S. will not enter into trade agreements as without significant concessions for labor and climate. So both in his foreign policy agenda and in his at-home agenda, Biden needs to be willing to fight the tough fights. And the big question, you know, nine, 10 months now into his administration is whether or not he's willing to fight them because so far it looks like he's not. So uh, unless he actually gets involved and is willing to get his hands dirty, instead of being the president who's above the fray, but being the president who's in the fight, then we're not actually going to see his goals come to pass. Sure, I think he's, I was going to say, too, he's definitely going to have to piss off some Republicans. Um, he's going to have to piss off big, big coal, you know, the oil industry. That's just what's going to need to happen. And so far, we've seen him kind of step away from that. But I hope, like you said, the big fights, you got to be in them. And what was notable about this uh, summit was actually who was not at the summit, uh, President Xi Jinping of China. China, of course, one of the largest, the world's largest greenhouse gas uh, emitters. Um, President Xi Jinping didn't even bother to attend the Glasgow uh, climate conference, and he won't be joined. He didn't join by video either. Uh, Biden chastised China as well as Russia in a press conference at the end of the G20 uh, meeting, saying the countries basically didn't show up in terms of any commitments to deal with climate change. Uh, but the Biden administration and European governments have been triangulating uh, their climate strategy in hopes to kind of push China along uh, to, you know, in an, an alignment with you know, the G20's goals of 
you know, zero carbon emissions by mid-century 2050. Um, you know, did President Biden do an effective job, you know, in terms of diplomacy and, and increasing the pressure on China and Russia? I think we're seeing the traditional line, the traditional East-West alignments, the traditional uh, U.S., France, U.K. versus Eastern Europe and Russia alignment. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, it comes down to domestic policy as well. Uh, China and Russia are able to do whatever they want climate-wise because they sell so much coal and gas, respectively, to the rest of their regions. You know, Eastern Europe runs on Russian natural gas. East Asia runs on Chinese coal. So unless you and unless you and your allies can come together and find a way to get the rest of the world off of coal and gas, then you know save the rhetoric because that's all it is at the end of the day, just hot air. Yeah, um, uh, Tia mentioned how we'd, we'd be uh, angering a lot of Republicans, but we'd also be angering a lot of people who are benefiting financially from oil and gas, from all of these these companies, you know, these companies who are continuing to produce plastic, even though we know that. Um, recycling essentially has been a proven myth now, you know. Um, and so, is, is he going to be able to to stand up to the people on on both sides? Because it's not a part money. Money speaks to both parties, right? Um, is he going to be able to stand up uh, in, in that way? And then I'm also really interested in it, it is the typical the typical sort of alignments, but I'm interested in 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 knowing uh, outside of you know economically um, what China's reasoning uh, would be uh, because I was reading about how like. Uh, they, they're, they're working a lot on their reforestation. They're working a lot on, um, on the implementation of solar and all these sort of things that would imply that they're in alignment with um, ensuring that we're doing something about climate change. Um, so to not show up, I think, is, a, is an interesting um, statement that I, I don't think is, is, is done by accident by any means. I mean, yeah, I think the East, um, the East and along with America, we are the ones dragging our feet because we stand the most to gain from destroying the planet, um, gas and coal and other non-productive energy sources. Um, it really, it, like, like you were saying, it's how you know, money makes the world go round. And if we can prove that um, green, green energy has, has money and can, and can funnel into the economy, I think maybe they'd be more open to it. But right now, you know, who's gonna pay the bills? right now that's gas and coal so and it, it's very interesting because we talked about like the, the importance of domestic policy in decisions like this too mm -hmm. because i think especially in terms of gaining uh the not the support but the faith um of of uh, american citizens global citizens really in in uh the idea that we would really be able to enact real climate change that would make an impact that could reverse things that could provide our children our children's children a future um it, it, it's, it's, I would imagine uh, it would be hard to believe in in policy uh, that strong um, or to believe that their desire for us to stay alive and live well would be any sort of motivation uh, when when in, when being compared to uh, the much greater motivation of financial gain um, for the wealthy few, right? And so um, when you, again, don't provide health care to millions of people uh, during a global uh, health crisis. You don't provide people economic, uh, you know, ec any sort of economic relief. You, you pull back on, on, on student debt. You, you know, you pull, you're, you're cutting funding significantly on, on your 
big infrastructure plan. It's it's hard to believe when real life people's lives are at stake, even with those policies that then was something this large that, that I could appeal to your, your humanity really enough to see me as a valuable enough life to make the, the right decisions um, over profit. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? Like Tia said, as we're dragging our feet on climate change and whether or not this is worth you know, investing in, Germans, Germany's election last month, the number one issue was climate change. Uh, the center-left social Democrats actually on track were for 26.0% of the vote ahead of 24.5% for Merkel's uh, Christian Democratic uh, conservative bloc. And the number one issue, according to NPR uh, News, for a lot of the German voters was who's going to address the climate change crisis the best. And it just goes to, sh to show you how you know, drastically far ahead the rest of the world is in addressing climate changes and addressing climate change in the United States. Uh, but I do want to thank you panelists. I know that time has come to an end. Camilla Ahmed, Nate Honore, Tia Toombs, it's always a pleasure and honor to have you um, on this program. Um, thank you for what you bought to episode 50. This was, you know, 50 episodes, you know, um, I honestly didn't anticipate it to get this long, but I thank you for what you've done to make this conversation one of substance um, and very insightful. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude episode 50 of the Political Mike podcast. Thanks for tuning in.